0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rithuparna Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Rashna Darius Nicholson. Dr. Rashna Darius Nicholson is an assistant professor of theater studies at the University of Hong Kong. She is Barbara Klein Fellow at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study and Luce East Asia Fellow at the National Humanities Center in 2021 to she is the author of articles and book chapters in Theatre Research International, Theatre Survey, the Drama Review, TDR, South Asia Journal of South Asian Studies, the Rutledge Companion to Theatre and Performance Historiography, and the Methun Drama Handbook of Theatre History and Historiography. She was the convener of the IFTR Historiography Working Group between 2017 and 20. She is the author of the book, The Colonial Public and the Parsi Stage, The Making of the Theatre of Empire, 1853 to 1893, published by Paul Grave in 2021, which will be the focus of our conversation today. I'm very glad to have you with us. Welcome to this interview.
1: Thank you, Ritu Parna. It's great to be here.
0: Right. So let's begin by uh, knowing a little bit about your inspiration behind writing this book in terms of the factors that motivated you to, you know, take up writing this manuscript.
1: So the journey for this book began, you know, a very long time ago, more than a decade ago, uh, when I was an MA student uh, at the University of Copenhagen. I was doing something very, very far removed from South Asian studies or even theater history. I was actually training to become a theater practitioner. So, you know, we were doing voice training and we were doing dramaturgy and we were doing workshops. And uh, during that time, uh, you know, that one sort of pivotal thing happened. Uh, A few pivotal things happened, which I won't get into, but one of them was, uh, perusing the shelves of the theatre library at the University of Copenhagen and chancing upon a book called The Parsi Theatre, Its Origins and Development by Somnath Gupt, translated by Catherine Hansen. Um, and I was very surprised to see that book, I remember, and seeing the title because uh, having grown up in Bombay, uh, I knew what Parsi theatre was. I mean, I had this impression of Parsi theatre as being this quaint theatre form for the Parsis of Bombay that happens once a year on uh, the Parsi New Year, the Zoroastrian New Year. Um, And so I was very surprised to read about this enormously influential cultural phenomenon in the 19th century that was not only the precursor to, you know, numerous modern proscenium-based theaters across South Asia and Southeast Asia, but also uh, the predecessor of Bollywood. Um, and so, you know, I was I was I was shocked to read of that because, you know, being half Parsi myself, I found it incredible that I had no idea. Um, about this uh, hugely important cultural phenomenon, uh, arguably the most important cultural phenomenon in the subcontinent in the 19th century. So I decided that after completing my MA, you know, one of the things that I found frustrating about the book was a the paucity of primary sources that were referred to in the book. It was very interesting, but, you know, the, the book primarily relied on secondary sources and, you know, you couldn't get a very good sense of which troops existed when or how the theatre Evolved from one genre to another. Who would, you know, which playwrights came when, what plays exactly they wrote, and what these plays were about. Um, you know, all of the details essentially were missing. And so I thought that after my after my uh, uh, masters, I would go back to India um, and see if I could find any primary sources. Um, and and so I did what every Uh, self-respecting scholar does, which is I went to Google and I typed Parsi theater scripts. This was in 2009, 10. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, this institution popped up, UNESCO Parzor in New Delhi. And so I wrote an email to uh, the head of that institute. And then I found myself in Delhi a few weeks later, And there were a hundred or so uh, Parsi theatre scripts dating from the 19th century in that archive. At the time, I had just, I I was unable to read Gujarati. I understood it passively because that was the language that uh, my parents spoke at home. And that is the language, one of the languages that you hear quite often in Bombay, um, which is where I grew up. But um, I didn't know how to read the language. And so that was the beginning of a tortuous year-long process of uh, uh, sitting with my mother every evening and having her read uh, these scripts to me while I would record her voice and then read the text with her. Um, And we both essentially were not only discovering a new language, which is 19th century Parsi Gujarati, uh, which, you know, uh, 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 there is a version of that that exists today, but it is essentially a dead language. Um, so we were not only discovering that, but, you know, my mother was essentially enacting these plays for me. So it it was almost a sense of, you know, these plays were almost brought to life in a way during that time, during that year. And then I also decided during that time that the easiest way to really do this research properly is to do a PhD. So I I actually got into academia for all the wrong reasons, I would say, not to, you know, get into an academic career, but to be able to to do this project properly. Um, and so I ended up again in, in, in Munich uh, in 2012 uh, to, to sort of Trace this hundred-year-long uh, cultural phenomenon, and the first thing that um, one of my supervisors said when I got to Munich, you know, after having found these hundred years worth of, uh, of uh, play scripts, was that you know you'd actually don't have enough archival materials. You need to go back to India, and you need to find newspapers that are chronicling uh, this theatrical form. So vernacular newspapers. Um, and so I went back to Bombay, and that's exactly what I did. I found uh, hundred years worth of uh, newspapers that have hardly been looked at: uh, the Rast Goftar, which was published between eighteen from eighteen fifty three onwards, um, and uh, the Jame Jamshid, and the Bombay Samachar. The Bombay Samachar being the oldest uh, vernacular newspaper in India. Um, And so that was sort of the beginning of this very long journey that I embarked on, (laughs) I I, magical journey, because I spent uh, many, many hot, sweaty, but beautiful months at the J. N. Pettit uh, Library in Bombay, uh, which is an incredible archive of uh, resources on South Asia that few people actually explore, um, turning page after page of uh, these relatively untouched, Newspapers from the nineteenth uh, century in Gujarati that essentially t- t- told the story, not only of the genesis and the development of this theatre, but also of the Parsees' the Parsee community's response to uh, the theatre's um, uh, origins and and subsequent development. Um, so, so that that is essentially how the book came about. It comes from. You know, even though it's about a hundred and twenty hundred year cultural phenomenon, it's very much rooted uh, in a particular place, which is Bombay. um, And it is heavily based on archival resources uh, in Parsi, Gujarati and Urdu uh, from Bombay. Um, Yeah. So that is how the book uh, came about, I would say.
0: Thank you for the very comprehensive overview. Uh, Next, if you could talk a little bit about who the Parsis are and what their significance in the Indian context has been for our listeners all over the world, that would be really great.
1: Mm-hmm. So the Parsi community, um, the bog standard answer is that they they they're an ethno-religious minority from Iran from Persia. They fled from Persia about a thousand years ago uh, with the Islamic invasion of Persia, and they settled on the western coast of Gujarat. Um, and they were essentially primarily engaged in agriculture and artisanry, but. The Parsi community very much flourished in with the advent of British colonialism. Uh, so prior to the British uh, landing in India, you know they lived very much on the periphery of of the Indian subcontinent. They kept to themselves. There's a very famous story of uh, you know the the sugar in the milk, where the Parsis tell the Gujarati ruler that you know, when they first come to India, that uh, they will sort of uh, sweeten the milk, just like the sugar sweetens the milk, they will also sweeten uh, India um, and, you know, absorb into Indian culture. Um, But they sort of, one of the rules, you know, one of the legends is that they they promised the ruler that they would not uh, try to proselytize the community to their religion, which is Zoroastrianism. Um, and that they would keep to themselves, you know, They would so they would, uh, you know, marry within the community and so on and so forth. Um, and so, um, you know, it, the, the Parsi community is very easily identifiable. Uh, <laughs> they have, uh, uh, they, they, they look a certain way, they talk a certain way, they act a certain way. And in the 19th century, you know, uh, they... I would say they were the, 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 the chief compradors or one of the most important comprador communities for the British. Uh, the word comprador is a Portuguese word which, which means middlemen. So they essentially facilitated or made possible uh, the British opium and cotton trade. They, they essentially made possible the project of empire. Uh, so if you even look at. Uh, Parsi surnames today, such as Dubash or Dalal. Dubash means two languages or translator, and Dalal means broker or trader. These surnames essentially reference uh, the community's very important compradorial role for the British in the 18th and 19th century. So whether it was building ships or uh, providing provisions to the British troops, you know, uh, trading in alcohol, uh, uh translating, finding labor, you know, uh, for uh, the British. All of this was essentially done uh, by the Parsis. And then subsequently, you know, they amassed a considerable amount of wealth uh, by engaging in their own shipping and trading ventures. Um, So a very famous name is uh, Jamseji Gigi Boy. He engaged in the opium trade with uh, Jardine and Matheson, which would be a name that... uh, history buffs uh, should be familiar with. Um, And so the Parsis were heavily engaged in uh, the opium and cotton trade in the 19th century. Um, And that's what led to them being a very rich community. They are a very tiny community in India today, but a very wealthy community. So um, uh, if you walk around South Bombay, uh, you'll see that a lot of the monuments in South Bombay. A lot of the fountains, a lot of the old 19th century buildings uh, were constructed by the Parsi millionaires of the 19th century.
0: Right. So could you also talk a little bit about how the process of colonialism impacted the development of Parsi theatre?
1: Um, so the Parsi theatre couldn't really have happened without colonialism. Um, the theatre started in 1853, and it was very much inspired by two phenomena. Uh, the first were travelling uh, European companies that had begun uh, stopping in Bombay and performing at the town hall, um, and and so you know the young. Parsi thespians who had begun attending school and university were very much inspired by um, these traveling companies. And so uh, one of the key inspirations for the Parsi theater, you know, for for its earliest plays were these traveling troops. The second is actually the Marathi theater. The Marathi theater was the first theater in Western India to, um, begin performing these, uh, you know, plays that were based on a script uh, with a proscenium stage. Um, And so, uh, you know, the Parsi theatre was very much inspired by these two uh, forms. Um, So, you know, colonialism, I would say, uh, you know, made possible in very sort of practical, material ways, the theater. Um, the Parsi theater was the largest, most influential proscenium-based theater uh, in the Indian subcontinent in the 19th century. And so um, all of the mechanical devices, the visual effects that were traveling during that period from Australia to South Africa, to Europe, you know, they, they made the, it, the, the, all of these things came to India, to Bombay and the Parsi theater was very much an indigenous response to all of these uh, things. So um, yes. And I mean, I, I, don't want to delve into, <laughs> into um, uh, the sort of the, the nitty gritties of the book, uh, but the book also tells the story of how, you um, uh, the theatre was also in very much a response. It came out of the, 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 the Parsi reformist movement, uh, which, or the social reform movement of the Parsi community, uh, which essentially was uh, a, a very broad phenomenon that was happening among diverse communities in India, whether it was the Hindus or the Muslims, and all these communities were essentially trying to reform their religious and social practices, so whether it was child marriage or dowries or even wearing appropriate clothing, every community was trying to adopt, uh, uh, you know, uh, English standards of morality and virtue, virtue uh, or civilization and progress, um, and the Parsi theatre was was also a, a part of that movement. Um, there, there was an attempt on on the part of the Parsis. It was an attempt on the part of the Parsis to, uh, um, I would say, appropriate, not just appropriate, but adapt to, I think, uh, some of the morals uh, or sort of values, I think, of the ruling class. Um, so, yes.
0: All right. So, Could you also talk a little bit about the relationship that the Parsis shared with, you know, the idea of the public sphere? Because that era is important when we look at that concept and uh, Habermas talks about the development of a public sphere in Europe and how does it, you know, shape their relationship in the Indian context?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, you know, one of the key sort of stories of the book is tracing how the public, the evolution of the public sphere in, in the subcontinent and showing how the public sphere in the subcontinent operated quite differently from the one in the European context. Um, the, uh, if I have to talk about the beginnings quite specifically, um, the first vernacular newspaper in India Uh, which is, you know, uh, the Bombay Samachar, it started off not as a newspaper, but to communicate news uh, more quickly among the Parsi traders. So, you know, it was faster than uh, uh, government postage. And so uh, it started off simply to convey market rates uh, more quickly amongst the traders. Um, But then, you know, something quite pivotal happened, which was this missionary, John Wilson, uh, who actually created this very important university college in Bombay called the Wilson College. He um, began uh, attacking the Parsis in the Bombay Samachar uh, around the 1830s for their allegedly impure customs and beliefs and uh, telling them that they were a polytheistic religion, and how they worship the elements, and uh, how the religion was full of inaccuracies, and was all you know mumbo jumbo, and essentially trying to convert the Parsis, um, and that I mean the editor of the Bombay Samachar at the time was completely inequipped to deal with um, this Gujarati-speaking missionary. Who was uh, who seemingly knew more about Zoroastrianism than the, than the Parsis did, um, and that led to the Parsi social reform movement. So other young Parsis began responding in the newspaper, you know, attacking the Parsi priestly class and also the um, it's the, the community's leaders for not being able to respond to Wilson's uh, uh, criticisms. Um, and that led to a broad, sweeping questioning of uh, the Parsis' religious and social customs, um, leading to, uh, a, in turn, uh, numerous uh, vernacular newspapers. Uh, one of these newspapers was the Rast Goftar, which, as I mentioned earlier, you know the copies are lying at the J.N. Pettit Institute, and I would say they are the most important newspapers that exists to date, if one needs to understand what was happening in Western India uh, and in Bombay specifically. Um, and uh, these did, the, you know, the Rast Govtar, you know, became the mouthpiece of the Parsi social reform movement. So every week articles would be published on themes such as uh, the evils of gambling, uh, the need for moral amusement and libraries and exhibitions. Um, the, uh, how, you know, women should not wail at funerals, um, how wedding expenses should be kept at a minimum, you know, or even, you know, the need for um, learning about the religion on Western lines, so talking about the works of people like Marx, Müller, uh, and the German Orientalists. Um, I mean, all of this was part of the social reform movement. Um, and the theatre, as I mentioned, comes out of the social reform movement. So, um uh, the same people that created the newspaper, uh, the Rast Koftar, um, and the same people who were also part of the Bombay Association, which is uh, the the place that germinated the Indian National Congress, uh, the political movement, um, the, the 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 key uh, pro independence movement of India. Uh, that same associate the people from that association also created the Parsi theatre um, for the same reasons, which was the uh, social and moral improvement of uh, the Parsi community of Bombay.
0: Right. So just to get a sense of, you know, the gender perspective, how do you understand the role of women in all of this? Because you do focus on it in your book. And uh, do you think that Parsi theatre managed to create an essentialist idea of, you know, an indigenous or an Indian femininity? So
1: it's not a coincidence that the picture on the cover of the book is of a woman. It's a, not a woman. It's actually a girl. It's an unnamed uh, female, uh, you know, act, I, I, I don't even want to say actress, but performer um, from the late 19th century, who performed uh, for a very, very important uh, Parsi theatre company, the Baliwala, uh, company. Um, but uh, women, you know, I mean, the book is essentially not just about the Parsi theater. It's also about the place of women uh, in the uh, public sphere uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century. The book shows how, um, uh, you know, again, it's very hard to sort of gloss over this in a few minutes, uh, but um the, fir- the first chapter essentially shows how women were actually central to the Parsi social reform movement. So, you know, the the entire, you know, I would say that the culmination of the reform movement was the consolidation of Parsi law in the 19th century. Uh, and women were at the center, the rights of women were at the center of the drafting of Parsi law uh, in sort of during that period. Um, but you know, if you, other scholars have written about this and have shown this better than, than I have, uh, but you know, even though rights were seemingly being conferred on Parsi women, uh, these rights, you know, they, they, they may not have if effectively been actually materially changing. I think, um, uh, women's ability to be able to say, you know, uh, do certain things freely in public. Uh, so for example, the, the, the book shows how, you know, it, the Parsi theater opened up a space for respectable, moral women to come into the public sphere and attend the theater. But at the same time, it did so by castigating Narch women. So uh, pre-colonial um theater forms or entertainment forms. Uh, so there was a, you know, there was there was a very strong attempt to contrast respectable, moral, uh, pure Parsi women from the crass women of the street. Um, and so there was this paradoxical thing happening in the mid-19th century, which was that while ostensibly certain rights were being given to certain class of women, Uh, many other women were being ostracized um, uh, at the same time. Uh, Subsequently, uh, the book shows how, um, you know, in a few years later, uh, just, you know, a decade later, the theater moves from being um, a, a, a cultural phenomenon for the Parsi community of Bombay to this mass theatrical form for the subcontinent, essentially, and for for, for South Asia and for Southeast Asia. Um, and so it ceases to be for the moral benefit of, of the Parsi community. It becomes an, chiefly a form of amusement and entertainment. And that's when you see, uh, actually, these Narch women returning to the stage. Um, you know, that's also when you see the moral, respectable classes Ceasing to attend the theater, um, and that's also when you begin to see a very interesting phenomenon happening, which is uh, the, in within the plays themselves, you begin to see a plethora of female characters. Um, first you see you know this this first I would say the, the first play in Hindustani of the Parsi theater, which is Sona Molni Um Khorshid is a female character who is essentially um, kidnapped. By many many men, <laughs> and she manages to re- retain her chastity throughout. Um, but it's a it's a very important important allegory uh, that was being performed in the 19th century of the, the indigenous women, woman who had been captured by many men, but who had never lost her purity. And that trope subsequently transforms in a few years into Hindu mythological figures, so figures like Sita and uh, Damayanti. These very marked Hindu characters that then become the symbols for the Indian nationalist movement uh, and for Hindu revivalism. Uh, So the theater, you know, the woman's question in in the Parsi theater was never a simple one. Um, You know, on the one hand, the theater had a very complex relationship with women inside of the theater. So with actresses and with female patrons, uh, but it also had a very complex relationship with the way female characters were represented on stage, Um, and I argue in the book, I show how um, the theatre was essentially the most important mechanism for disseminating popular visions of nationalism through these female characters.
0: Right. Again, very fascinating. And I would also want to know, since you talk about, you know, the relationship with colonialism, uh, do you think that party theater became a big part of the British Empire and, you know, its influential cultural commodity part in this period?
1: So the book... Traces how the Parsi theatre evolved from being a theatrical form, an amateur theatrical form for the Parsi community of Bombay, to becoming this hugely, enormously influential cultural commodity of the uh, uh, 19th century that traveled from Bombay to then North India, South India. And then further afield to uh, Burma and Singapore and present day Indonesia and Java and even uh, East Africa, and uh, subsequently to London. Uh, So uh, where where it was not very successful, uh, but uh, it's you know the Parsi theatre was enormously successful in Southeast Asia and 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 East Asia, and in fact. you know, it led to the emergence of proscenium based theaters in all of these parts of the world. So, if you think of Bangsavan or uh, uh, you know the uh, comedy Istanbul, um, uh, all of these forms, the Nurti, uh, they they were essentially inspired by the Parsi theater. Uh, so, yes, the Parsi theater was 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 um, enormously influential um, during the uh, during that period.
0: Right. So just to know a little bit more and, you know, explore uh, the relationship between Parsi theatre and cinema, because you call it a precursor to how cinema began in India. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Um,
1: So the book stops at 1893 just because you know, I was getting really... I had reached the 700-page mark with my thesis. <laughs> and that was when my supervisor wisely said, you know... I, I wrote to him saying, should I stop now? <laughs> and he said yes. Um, but the theatre phenomenon, you know, it it, it goes on. It's it sort of... It, it. 1893 is the halfway mark of the theatre. It actually... Of the pre-colonial, I have to say... Of the colonial Parsi theatre. So, um Uh, It actually, I mean, it's also the year, 1893 is also the year when that marks the advent of cinema uh, in the Indian subcontinent and film. Um, And the second part of the book, which is still to be written, (laughs) but which is very much on my mind. I mean, I don't know when it'll be written, maybe in 10, 20 years. I don't know. But i mean i have the material uh, but it, the the uh, in the second part you can see how uh, the the sources show how the theater subsequently uh, tries to negotiate its very precarious position not only in relation to the indian nationalist movement but also in relation to the rise of this new technology which is film um you know everyone who knows about you know indian theatre history knows that uh, all of the key personnel of the early Indian cinema of Bollywood came from the Barsi theatre, and all of the scenography, the spectacular uh, devices, just the entire visual scheme of early Indian cinema Comes from the Parsi theatre. Uh, the way, of, uh, the ways of acting, the ways of singing and dancing—you know—all of that is drawn from uh, Parsi theatre tradition. Um, so there's a direct link. I wouldn't even say link. It's sort of a very seamless line between um, the early 20th century Parsi theatre and Bollywood, um, but. Um, I think one of the key arguments of the text is also that it's very difficult to speak of one single Parsi theatre. I mean, there was the mainstream Hindustani theatre that um, became Bollywood, but there's, there were also, you know, there was also Parsi theatre happening in Gujarati for the Parsi community of Bombay. Uh, there were, you know, specific Parsi theatres happening in Rajasthan, in Tamil Nadu in Tamil um, as I mentioned earlier in sort of Southeast Asia in yeah in Java Um, and so um, you know it's it these different forms that were happening for specific communities also evolved during that period Um, and you know the example that I always cite is the Parsi theater for the Parsi community, it it subsequently became, you know, the Parsi theater that we know it today, which is something that happens once or twice a year for the Parsi community in Gujarati during festival days, so during um, the Persian New Year, Navruz. But, you know, I guess that's the interesting thing about sort of this theatrical form, that on the one hand... um, it led to this, uh, to Bollywood. (laughs) Bollywood is very much uh, a part of that lineage, but it also, you can see the influence of this form in many other uh, less apparent uh, places uh, like, you know, on Navarro's Day Parsi celebrations or uh, in the Bangsawan.
0: Right, so just to end the interview, Uh, If you, you know, would want to talk about future scope of research in this area and, you know, what kind of research can be picked up? Because your manuscript is very recent. It just got published in 2021.
1: So, I mean, one of the key arguments of the text is that history is always written from a particular place. Um, And I have very consciously written this book from the place of Bombay uh, and the point of view of the Parsi community of Bombay. And one of the claims that the book makes is that it's impossible to write a history of a hundred, more than 100-year-old theatrical phenomenon that spread from Bombay to all over the subcontinent and then to Southeast Asia and East Asia and East Africa. Um, you know, it's impossible to write about such a huge... Um, thick cultural form in one book and by one person. You know, if one had to write the authoritative history of uh, the Parsi theatre, one would need to access sources not just in Gujarati and Hindustani, but in the numerous minor sort of uh, languages that the theatre subsequently was also performed in. Um, so uh, I, you know, I, I... While I have written the story of the origins of the Parsi theatre, you know, and very much sort of based on heavily on Parsi Gujarati and Gujarati and and Hindustani sources, I think there's enormous scope um, for other researchers to write, you know, the version of the Parsi theatre, the history of the Parsi theatre from the pre- from other places, uh, from other locations, whether that's Rajasthan or whether that's Lucknow or whether that's uh, uh, Madras um, or Burma, um, I think there's there's enormous scope for, I think, uh, you know, I think what what I've done is sort of um, essentially provide a a starting conceptual map, that would allow, I think, other researchers to know sort of the details like this is when a Parsi theater troupe traveled to Burma in this year and this month. Or this is the year that a troupe traveled to Calcutta or Delhi. Um, and I think, you know, like I said, I think there's enormous scope for then a researcher in Delhi or Calcutta to, you know, look at sort of the, the, the Bengali, uh, for example, uh, newspapers. Um, in that year, and then see the local impact of the theatre in those places. Um, so I would say there's there's this huge, huge scope, I think, uh, for um, further work in this field. And, you know, this is also, uh, this leads to another question, which is uh, on sort of the privileging of particular kinds of archival resources over others. Um, You know, one of the great advantages about the digitization of newspapers like the Times of India is that you can write, you know, Parsi theater and with a click, you can get 150 entries on the Parsi theater and you can sort of kind of see what's happening. But at the same time, that kind of research is very superficial. Uh, You know, you see a very partial English elitist view uh, of uh, the theatre, you actually don't get to see what's happening on the ground. Um, And I think, you know, if the kind of research that I hope will subsequently come out on this form, you know, will engage with the local, vernacular, unprivileged... uh, sources, the ones in local languages uh, that are not digitized and that are potentially rotting away in community or local archives, um, and that are not valued as much as, say, sources in English or in Hindi or Urdu. Um, I think those are the, the, the sources that I hope will be looked at in the future, and that eventually leads to uh, the kind of research, a kind of decentering of Hindi and Hindustani um, and English that I, I, I just hope that that's the kind of research that will happen in the future.
0: Right. Thank you so much for the very fun and engaging conversation. And I hope that our listeners do pick up the book and read it. Thank you once again for taking the time out for new books in sociology.
1: Thank you, Ritu Parna. Thank you.